I just want to say that in this episode, we experienced some audio difficulties and we swapped microphones a couple times and changed how we were recording, but I think it'll probably be fine. All right, enjoy. Although, I do think that... I'm confused because I have a podcast set up. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Well, we worked, we just did it because we were in the middle of saying really good things about things like Undertale and Story. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about Story in-game, how it was better to play games that were story-driven for each of us separately when we were kids. Right, but better for no discernible reason. Um, mm. And that's not, you know, that's not a, a fair statement. But when, when you think about these games, the games that you played when you were a kid and you're like, oh, this game is cool because it has a cool story. And then you think about what the story was. <laughs> Collect four <laughs> elements. Right. One at a time. It was arguably not a story. Yeah. So maybe what we were thinking of as story was not story, but there was some other mechanical aspect that like fed sure. into the idea of narrative. Well, there is something about the narrative that gives structure to play that I like. I mean, it gives pretty standard narrative structures to play often. You know, you'll just be there in the three-act structure. Right. Or, you know, the game journey is literally the hero's journey. And just going through that and knowing the next step or, like, what's going to happen mostly, even if they mess with it. Like, big, giant plot twist. They're not really you the whole time. But, like, really, what is it about Final Fantasy, the original, that we think of it as having a story that is distinct from Super Mario Brothers, the original, where we don't think of it as a narrative, story-driven game? I'm thinking about my, my like, childhood self. I mean... I mean, so one thing that's true about Final Fantasy is you could have very rudimentary conversations with various people throughout the world. Right. And it's funny because it, there is no story for the main characters other than there's some like leveling up. You start out weak and you get strong. Right. Actually, I think progression is probably a big part of like how progression is presented in game is probably a big part of what masquerades as story. <laughs> right. I mean, and it does work as a... It is a story element. Like, you've watched any game with a training montage in it, or any movie with a training montage in it. Right. And you're like, yep, this is the part where they get better. Only in movies, they compress that down to, you know, four minutes. But in games, it's ten hours to a hundred hours of gameplay. Right. Mm. But, but, you know, like... We go through Mario Brothers, and there are very few words. So I think what we're really queuing into is words. I'm sorry, Mario. <laughs> right. But, like, you could write the story of Super Mario Brothers, and you could write the story of Final Fantasy, and according to how your writing style, you mm -hmm. could probably write them, and they'd be approximately as compelling stories, right? Like, yeah. Mario starts in this open plane, and he discovers this strange creature, and he eats a mushroom, and he grows, and then he's in a cave and it's you know dark and lewis carroll wrote that story. <laughs> right and the narrative ambition of final fantasy is grander in a certain way mm -hmm. it, it you're just you're saving a world not just a princess it also has side plots like you have characters that you go and see it's i mean it's not strictly a three-act structure right that's true i mean you go and you talk to oh that's why you sound so far away <laughs> ah here i am 
<laughs> Will had the wrong microphone on. And he was with us the whole time. <laughs> oh, hi, I'm Bryce. And I'm Will. And this is SideQuest. <laughs> well, we've been talking about this for much longer than we've been recording, so. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, there are these side quests. You know, you go and you talk to the guy who wants the ruby. Right, or you, you, you. Matoya, right? Yeah. Um, what? She, she wants a crystal to fix her blind. You give her glasses, right? You give her a right. pair of glasses. They call it a crystal. You know, she just wants you to get. She lost her glasses and you have to find them. And you go and you find her magic glasses and you give them back and. Something happens. I can't remember what. Uh, um, her brooms talk backwards. Yeah. And they tell you... That's right. They tell you how to open the world map. <laughs> they do tell you how to open the world map. <laughs> but it's funny, because if you realize that they're just speaking backwards, you can learn that way before. Because I think Matoya tells you that the brooms speak... Oh, is that really all that happens? No, that's no, not... She does no, something she, else, right? She gives you the herb, which you use to wake the elf prince. Oh, yeah, the that elf prince. That opening sequence of that game is quite good. And the story drives everything that you do in it. And then there's backtracking, uh, but it's backtracking in a way that's interesting because you get to Matoya the first time, you don't have the ship yet. Because you can get there right after you cross the bridge. Right. You can like yeah, yeah. That's the first on. time you see her. Yeah. And she's like, oh, yeah, I just need my glass. And you're like, okay. But you're like, great, I'm not in a town. You won't sell me heels. So what am I going to do? So then you go down and then you find the town, the, the pirates, and you get the ship. And then you can go down to the elf kingdom. Right. And then you're like, wake the sleeping prince. You're like, oh, okay. So then each step sends you along to the next chunk. You have to go and like... Get the crown and then take it to Astos. And then you, I've played this right. game way too many and, times. And, and so I think one of the things that, that we're really experiencing when we're playing Final Fantasy for, for the first time is exploration, mm-hmm. which is like a very different and actually like a quite different pleasure from, from narrative. Well, but the narrative drives the exploration. They say, go over there. We need this thing. Right. And they actually don't, there's no waypoint on your map they say to the southwest no it's pretty simple you can only go one way that is southwest right but you know it it is this sense that there is a world Mm -hmm. that there is a big world that stuff is in a big world to explore and i guess one thing i'm thinking about is how how when most of the times i have played a game where there's a big world to explore Mm-hmm. Or a big universe to explore, or a galaxy, or wherever, mm-hmm. a big game space to explore. Mm-hmm. It has been in the context of a heavily authored, relatively linear narrative story-driven game. Mm-hmm. Because of the games I played and the time I grew up playing a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I was a kid now, that would be really different, because the game that I would have played the most of would have been Minecraft, right. um, which has no narrative to speak of, except the one that happens for you, because you're like, I want to not be eaten by zombies yeah. at night. That's one of those interesting things where you get actually mechanics-driven narrative in games. Like, the story is, I need to climb a tree and spend the first night in a tree. I'm one of the only people I know who spends the first night in Minecraft in a tree. Almost everyone else is like, no, you dig a hole in the ground and you hide out there. I was like, no, tree. I go into the tree. And then I think one other person I've ever met does that. And then you, by the like the third night, you're like, I am a zombie slaying machine, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, I have very little to say about Minecraft that isn't related to its source code. Which is weird. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, the source code. Yeah, it's perfectly fine, I guess. Well, it's weird because there aren't blocks. There's just spaces and what kind of block those spaces are. Yeah, there's a game dev conversation about about that. It's like there's a series of interesting decisions. And I think that looking at the Minecraft source code and doing Minecraft modding, um, there are some decisions that even now with more programming experience and more looking at Minecraft experience that I think my, the Minecraft developers have made that are completely ridiculous. I'm like, why would you make that decision? Who knows? Although all programming decisions are kind of like that. You made it, and now you made it. So why did right. you make it? Because it was the first thought you had. It did the job when I needed that job done. Right. And then it kept doing that job after I was doing other stuff. And is it the best way to do that job? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? It's I still... don't need to know that. Right. And if it wasn't for its mind-boggling popularity... I mean, but like, if, if we made Minecraft or a game that was like Minecraft, but nobody cared about it, however we kludged something together to make it work, no one would be like, that's such a weird way to do that. Right, yeah. You know, and if we wrote the most beautiful code version of Minecraft now, no one would like, stop playing Minecraft. That's true. They wouldn't be like, oh, this one is more cleanly developed. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could just take the whole modding community oh. and then get sued by Mojang. Or weren't they bought what, by Microsoft? Microsoft? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they have lawyers. They, they have produced a drag and drop framework for Minecraft modding that exists now. Have you um, looked at it? I looked over a child's shoulder while he was looking at it. That's that's like it. So is it like Scratch? It's Tinker. Oh. But it's a Minecraft modding Tinker oh. thing. So that's it is, funny. It's like Scratch. Huh, that's cool. There are many things I don't like about Tinker, but the ability to mod Minecraft might be the thing I like about it. Yeah. Well, it's it's weird because kids want to mod Minecraft, but they don't really know anything about what that means. No. But from a process standpoint. Right, yeah. And it's terrible. All the things you have to do to mod Minecraft are really frustrating and terrible. And they're arguably like not even that good for teaching you programming. Because mm -hmm. they're like so hyper-specific. Yeah. Um, but there are habits that are really useful. It's hard to tell whether learning programming through some really ultra-specific way is good or bad. Like, it's, it's hard to tell about learning anything, about what order to learn it in makes the most sense. Because you'd be like, that's dumb, I learned it this other way. And you're like... Wait, is that way worse than the way I learned it, or is it... Yeah, and I think mm. order doesn't matter nearly so much as you want a relatively rapid back and forth between concrete and abstract things. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether you get the abstract first or the concrete first, because you can relate them to each other as long as you go from one to the other. Right. I was recently teaching a kid about Unity and C Sharp, and he knew all about Scratch. Right. And I was just like, oh my god, how do you teach... Because that one's really confusing because, like, there's all of this Unity stuff. And then there's programming in C Sharp and curly braces and semicolons. Right. And what is a float? Because he's just never had to interact with this. But he has written video games. Like, right. <laughs> I've seen them. Yeah, and, and so there's all these little things that you don't know. That are important. And it's like, how does Unity handle these things? I mean, processing is fantastic because it at least starts from a more ground right. state. There's like some functions built in that you can already use that you need to use to do anything. But once you get the idea of what a function is across, which is a bit of code with a name that you can right. call uh, and make happen at other times, which is very, very, very useful and you do constantly... In fact, almost all code you write is in a function. Right, yeah. I mean, according to what programming language you are using, right. all code 
in in many right. <laughs> in many languages, right? Like um, Java um, specifically, right? And, and processing does all these things. And if you were significantly younger than me, or learned to, learned to program younger than me, and you had some ideas about how programming should be taught that were like you should learn it the way I learned it, you might be like, "Well, processing might be like ridiculously high level," and you're like, "No, you should be learning C, and you should be allocating this memory, and um, blah blah blah." And that's all, you know. It's I, dumb. I'll it's just funny. say it. I've only done a little bit of programming in C, and I've done a lot of programming. Right. So, like, I understand that it's good to know that there is this thing called memory, and you ha- allocate it sometimes, and you have to deallocate it later. Right. But you don't have to do those things in yeah. order to really understand a lot of yeah, things. Yeah, well, and, and what C does is it, it makes you pay attention to the fact that there are resources Mm-hmm. And you must use them, and and you must like be cognizant of how you are using them. Actually, you always must be cognizant of how you are using your resources, right? Because they're still there all the time. But C makes it like really explicit. Well, it's funny because you you don't really. I mean, you do, right? But some, like, some, yeah, much of the time you don't because your computer was made after the year two thousand, so it can do a lot of things essentially for free. Right. And, I mean, basically you just program until you run into a resource problem. Right. And then you fix that problem. Right. But, like, being cognizant of this stuff is useful. And, like, being aware that certain things take certain resources is useful. And C makes that really explicit, which is neat in many ways. It's an extremely large hurdle for learning to program. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's funny about Scratch is that Scratch actually has, like, quite limited resources. Mm-hmm. But... They're, they're quite different from the resources of C. But I think... So, in like, in a concrete way, it doesn't teach you how to do these things. Right? It doesn't teach you how to do, like, C-style memory management. But in an abstract way, it teaches you how to do resource management. Because, you know, Scratch has a clone limit, which is, like, 300 clones. Or 200 clones or something. It's as high as that many. I thought it was around like a hundred something, like a hundred and ten or a hundred and fifty. I I think it's between two fifty five and three hundred, but I'm I'm not sure. But it's a you know a medium sized number. It's like a big number at first, and then you start trying to do something sophisticated, and then it becomes a small number. Right. Like if you're trying to draw a square around the whole outside with your beetle sprite copying itself as it moves around and then you run out of sprites and you're like oh how else do i do this which is not so much a problem in say minecraft although i don't really know how it handles it's like millions of cubes you can see yeah how does it well that's a that's a whole set of other things that's about seeing things and not about storing them because mm-hmm. it, it stores the cubes as this flat data structure it's like there's a huge array of what is where right so you're not storing a lot of cubes you just have one array of types of cubes and the, the world is just made up of a whole bunch of numbers that define types of cubes but there's this like 300 clone limit and if you're like oh well 300 is probably more sprites than i want moving around on the screen at any given time in general for most games unless you're some sort of monster who wants there to be bajillions of bullets or something on the screen although making a bullet hell game in scratch would be fun but still even then you're not going to have more than 300 bullets on the screen that would be hell's pretty extreme already i can't think of a more extreme word it'd be like some much lower circle of hell um <laughs> but yeah so like if, if you think about like your mario brothers right there's like a screen and even if you just count question mark blocks there's probably like 75 things 
if you count all the different breakable blocks plus the Koopas and Mario. You know, there's like right. 75 things on the screen. So like 300 is pretty high. But then if you think about how many blocks and interactable objects and stuff is there in a whole level of Super Mario Brothers, well, that's probably like a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 300 starts to feel quite low. Yeah, I'm thinking about Zelda and how... There must be some sort of difference between static objects and moving objects on the NES. Mostly, I think this because I think about in Zelda when you are on certain screens with the guys who shoot the arrows. And you get the guys that move around and there's like eight of them plus the arrows that they shoot of which there can be about eight at a time on them. When they're all shooting arrows at once, the whole process slows down. The arrows slow down, which actually makes it easier, which is nice. And it's funny because in the Game Boy Advance remake of it, they kept that in, whatever the processing limitation was. And so, like, there's some sort of limit to how much you can actually have going on at a time in there. And maybe maybe it doesn't matter about the cubes because, you know, there's some bushes on the screen, but they don't put that many enemies on those. Right. But so, so Scratch has this clone limit, and it's interesting because you're learning to program and you hit this relatively arbitrary limit, and then you have to like create these weirdo workarounds for this relatively arbitrary limit. And you might think this is like a very silly thing. You're just learning to solve weird problems in this like extremely limited domain. And there's an extent to which that's true, because the practice of working around the clone limit in Scratch is is relatively narrow in its utility. But actually, many of the techniques that you use in doing this are the same techniques that you use for optimizing performance in, you know, other kinds of programming things. Right. And, like, clones themselves are weirdly big things in memory. And they have this crazy arbitrary collision detection thing going on with them also. Because whatever shape, you know, your clone is, if you make a pickaxe, it's not using square collision. It's actually using uh, complex geometry around all of the... It's using the fact that it draws it draws all the things and then it tests whether it drew any pixels on top of any other pixels. So it's defined around the two-dimensionality of the object. Yeah, that, that's one of the ways that Scratch is weird because it uses the drawing as part of the deciding things rather than doing other math for collision detection. Yeah, although I'm not, I'm not like 100% convinced that that's super weird. When I wrote software uh, as a job when i wrote software for adults to use um, (laughs) for their jobs rather than writing software for children to use to learn to program i did a bunch of stuff that was in 3d space i worked in architecture but the best way i ever figured out how to decide which object my mouse cursor was on was to draw all the objects to a secret hidden buffer and then compare that compare whether i had drawn pixels for certain objects and then compare where the mouse pointer was and then you know, just look at the pixels rather than trying to do any like fancy projection or any collision detection or anything. And I think this is the technique that worked the best that I found, but also was one that was relatively common. And I think that the technique of like drawing things to a two-dimensional surface and then checking which pixels are touching which pixels is actually quite common. It's funny. So I was writing the touch script things for the game that we're working on with the robot. And I wanted to know whether you were touching a box so that if you touch the box and then you drag, then you push the box. You know, if the box is right next to you. And so Unity has its own screen-to-world position function. Right. And I think it just finds objects. And there's some magic there going on behind the scenes. So I literally have no idea how it figures out what I'm touching. Because Unity handles that for me. Although it was some effort to figure that out. 
Right. And so maybe it's doing some like projection through space. But yeah, if I was writing that from scratch without Unity, I would use my 3D engine. I would have a non-displayed display. I'd have a display that was only in memory, but not on the screen. I would give every object a unique color. I would draw them in the same order and in the same way that they were drawn to the screen so that things occluded each other correctly. And then I would check, I would look at the pixels you were touching, and I would check what color I had already drawn there. Huh. See, what I would do, (laughs) this is a fun exercise, is so the camera has a position and there's probably a plane that it is looking through that represents the screen ultimately. Right. So the way that the renderer works has a lot to do with the camera as a concept. So it would be a raycast and the first object hit by the raycast. Although I don't really exactly know how raycasts work other than it draws a line. Right. So you do a raycast from the from the position of the camera to the position of the plane. All right. So you have two points there. Mm-hmm. Or just business of the touch on the plane. Right. Yeah, the XY on the touch, yeah. Yeah, because the plane represents the screen, so you can get your touch position on that plane. Then you have the camera itself, and then you would use those as the two positions to define a line. And then you would determine all the objects that intersect that line over a certain distance, a certain segment of the line. And theoretically, Raycasts return a list of objects that it intersects with, and you would just pick the first one. Right, and there are reasons why that might be the better solution, and there are reasons why the solution I propose might be the better one. And in general, all of these reasons boil down to memory versus... Well, some solutions are bad, and others are good. And sometimes you can just be like, that's bad. Don't do it. But most of the time, if you have two solutions, one of them uses more memory and the other uses more processing. Mm. So you can either save time now by keeping stuff in memory, but you run out of memory, so you can't save everything in memory. And in this case, I can imagine, according to the way you're like partitioning your colliders, maybe there's so many colliders on the screen that it becomes really expensive to do that raycast because you have to compare that against every collider. Because you actually probably can't stop at the first one because you probably haven't structured the list in such a way that you probably have to go through all of them to know which one the first one is. Um, Maybe not. Maybe you've done something really smart, smarter than I can figure out right now. Yeah, well, I mean, your lists could order themselves based on that line automatically, and then you pick the first one. I'm not saying that that is the best option, but maybe the sort algorithm is going to be better than your check every object to see which one has the shortest. Right, and so there's all these trade-offs. And so, like, the the thing I proposed... (laughs) Bryce is a genius. (laughs) So Will and I traditionally sit across a table from each other while doing these podcasts, but this time we're using just one microphone. And it has just very recently occurred to me that we can sit on the same side of the table. (laughs) Although, to be fair, there's a kind of conversational discipline that is imposed by pushing the microphone back and forth. I know, that's true. And I actually think that some amount of that being like, I would like to talk, so I'm going to put my hand on the microphone bendy arm thing, which was very cheap. It seems like a very fantastic piece of equipment that would cost a lot of money, but it was like under $20. Those are amazing. Look how many parts. I couldn't make this for $20. can we mount like anything on it? What do you mount on? Like, what's the, is there threads? Is it a clamp? How do you uh, put things in there? <laughs> so there's this little knob, and that goes into a little clampy clamp. And then up here, I think this is three eighths inch. Okay, so you um, could put approximately anything that you ever want to mount on something. Right. Well, there's like 
two kinds of screws for film and audio equipment, and it's three eighths inch or one quarter inch. Right. It's a incredibly standard screw, and the other very standard screw is three eighths. And if you buy a tripod, they come with those. <laughs> what is funny? It just sounds like a what? <laughs> it's a standard screw. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I'm not entirely certain whether I'm going to keep that part in. I can't remember whether we're listed as an explicit podcast or not. So you definitely um, say a word in one of them that uh, I hadn't realized, but I went back and re-listened. That network television would disapprove of. I think we should list ourselves as explicit, but then not be. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Well, you can say stuff, but... Right. I've been listening to various podcasts, and there was one that marketed itself as... Yeah, we're explicit, so uh, if you're younger than 18, you know how cool you are. <laughs> no, I mean, I certainly, in, in my line of work, occasionally want to share podcasts with children. It's annoying when there are reasons why I'm hesitant to do so it's funny because i know there's a lot of media producers that produce one type of media for example me and you upon occasion so they'll be like a youtuber and they make youtube videos right and then they also have a podcast because you can produce podcasts relatively easily and if you would like to keep producing content at a high rate for your audience but you don't want to have to work 3,000 hours a day and hire a staff of a million, then you can make a podcast every week right. and then make a YouTube video once a month and it'll be fine. But it's also true that it is easier to digest a podcast in certain ways. Mm. Um, and so there's like an, an audience rate as well. I listen to more podcasts than I watch videos probably mm. because I can listen to podcasts while performing tasks. I do the opposite, but I spend my time at home watching YouTube. But I have the nerdiest YouTube habits, which is I only watch educational YouTube videos for the most part. Yeah, like, so I listen to podcasts when I walk the dog, and when mm. I clean the whatever. I definitely listen oh. to podcasts while walking your dog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he likes podcasts. <laughs> He's like, why are you laughing all of a sudden? Although I do actually, I have developed, and I don't know if it's just projection, but I've developed the feeling that he notices when I put my headphones in. Oh. Um, and that he knows that I'm paying less attention to him. <laughs> he seemed to be okay with it when I did it. Um, He's like, yeah, I know, I don't care. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the, we are just talking about rendering. Because we're talking about op optimization. Oh, yeah. Um, this is like series of decisions you make. And none of them are extremely important, but you make them. And you make them for reasons. And, in fact, your program does have limited resources, and you don't want to spend them all. And there's this funny way that Scratch teaches that stuff by being extremely limited. And it teaches it in a really abstract way that maybe if you're just messing around in Unity on your own computer, you will never hit Oh. Because you'll never hit this problem. You, you probably you probably will at some point, but you won't hit this problem where there's an arbitrary performance hurdle necessarily because mm -hmm. you're like, you know, making a 2D platformer on a computer that was built in the second decade of the 21st century. So there's a GDC talk that is a postmortem about Pitfall. Okay. That is fantastic and just... The resource limitations running on the Atari were crazy. Like, they rendered literally one line at a time. Okay. Which took all of the processing power of the Atari to make happen. Okay. 
And any game code that you wanted to run had to operate in the time between scan lines. Okay. <laughs> um. So you could run a frame. I think there was enough RAM to keep the frame buffer in or whatever right. or whatever was going on. But not... No, that wasn't even it. Because what you could draw was two sprites, for lack of a better word. They may have even called them them. I think the old consoles did have, like, a hardware... A hardware, like, mode of storing sprites. Where it was like, we're going to store these pixels in memory next to each other. Yeah, but there were two of them. Right, yeah. But that were eight pixels wide. Okay. Now, wide, not by anything. Okay. There was no height. Okay. Just eight pixels. And then there were two more that were one pixel wide, not by anything, just okay. one pixel wide. Right. So, so, that's, so that's just a pixel. It's it's just a pixel. So uh. the ropes in the game were the one pixel sprite yep. that could redraw where it was. And that's how it drew the rope swinging back and forth so and it, the different angles. So it moved the pixel every scan line. Yes. Because it could do a very small amount of processing between each scan line of your television. So it would, like, calculate the the angle of the rope would be stored. And between scan lines, it would determine where that pixel should move. Yeah. And what it's crazy. Uh, and, like, I knew Pitfall was just a better game than all the other games on the Atari. Right. I We had a bunch of them. Although Bump and Jump was really good. And Frogs and Flies is a fantastic game. I remember playing a game that was like four-player breakout, but I don't remember what it was called. Uh, it's the only Atari game Warlords? I, I don't know. It doesn't help. Uh, Were you on the corners? And yeah. You had a yeah. thing? Yeah. I played that game. I really like the game from playing yeah. games with people perspective. Right. Not from a technical <laughs> perspective. It was quite simple. Cubert <laughs> uh, is also pretty great, although half of that game is wrestling with the controls. So That was an arcade game. It was designed to be difficult to cost you money. So Oh, yeah, that's true. I also watched the postmortem on Miss Pac-Man mm. and how arcade owners got annoyed when people got good at their games. Right. Because you want people to play for about three minutes for a quarter. And when they got very good at them, they would play for like three hours. I expect that part of the rise of like the competitive arcade game, like Street Fighter, is related to that economic incentive. Mm. Huh. Where So if you like play these competitive arcade games, uh, you have a quarter and you play it and then you just keep beating people. And so you get to keep playing, but someone mm. else is coming in I see. Um, and spending a quarter. So every match costs someone a quarter. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. I guess I, that's so it, probably it. So it creates this value where you can still feel really good because you're really good, and so you get to keep playing for free. Mm -hmm. There was a mode in uh, various games, I guess, where you would play, and then player two could join in, mm -hmm. interrupt your progress through the game, right? and then you would fight them for that match, and then if you won, then you would go and play through the rest of the the like standard mode where you beat every other player. Yeah, yeah. I think Street Fighter did that because I think it was a I think the phrase was "Here comes the new challenger" or something. Oh, like that. Um, yeah, I didn't play that much Street Fighter because I I know I've mentioned this before. I did not have a Super Nintendo. Yeah, I played a lot on the Super Nintendo, and then later as an undergrad, I played it on an arcade machine that was at my college. But right, yeah. The uh, now I just really want to talk about Bushido Blade. It's a good game. I that I that's it. I just want to say Bushido Blade is a good game. <laughs> we can move on, but uh, that's just the best fighting game. And now that I've yeah. said that out loud, I can think about other things. 
uh, yeah, it's the best fighting game by far. Um, I really, really like it. It was a good game. It reflects the sensibility of how it like feels to be fighting with someone, among other things. As a fencer. Yeah. Um, as a competitive fencer. But I expect from other perspectives as well, like, you want to avoid getting hit. Like, a lot. <laughs> huh. Whereas, sweet. like, you know, in, in, like, Street Fighter, you just get hit a lot. Like, a, you want to avoid it, but it's a cost of doing business. As a semi-professional bobber sword fighter with children. <laughs> That's right. You don't want to get hit. Yeah. You try not to. Yeah, it's annoying when they start learning that they shouldn't try to just hit your sword. And, and so, like, Bushida Blade reflects this reality of the most important thing is to not get killed. Right. Um, and everything else is secondary. If I can not get killed for long enough and occasionally attempt attacks, I will probably win. Yeah. And if you can stab them in the head, that's good. Yeah. Ten is dead. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. I got really good at that game. Just really good. And it's something about how the single player mode is just a training for the you know playing with other people but if you get to the point where you can beat the single player mode you are pretty good at that game right and well and yeah looping back to like conversation about narrative the single player Um, mode they're really funny because it has a lot of like narrative elements to it but and there's a story there's a bunch of characters and they all have their own relationship to the story and like theoretically you can play through the game a bunch of times and like get some dialogue options and learn something about all the characters Um, and I'm sure I played through with all of them so I'm sure theoretically I know the story but there's something really disingenuous because you get the same story no matter who you start as right and you get a different ending yeah if you get a and there's a good ending and a bad ending and once I accidentally saw all of the good endings in Japanese and I've literally no idea how you get them Hmm. in the game like i know you're supposed to if you fight with honor you get the the good endings so you can't win at all if you don't fight with honor you you have to follow the bushido or Mm -hmm. whatever Uh, there's probably a better verb out there for what i just said but yeah basically you can't hit anyone when they're on the ground you can't hit anyone while they're not ready to fight you and then you go up against somebody with a gun yeah and you're like man i can't hit you before you start shooting at me what is this and you can beat them but it's it feels not right which is good because that's how it should feel when you have a sword and your opponent has a gun although knife to a gun it does also feel silly that you can eventually win because because like really can you yeah it has to do with aiming you're good at running around in circles but right you're not that good at running around in circles and this is traditionally where you start talking about slash mode Mm. you're not going to talk about it no that's right right so this game has this funny narrative it has this like a sensible story but in fact the story that you are telling yourself while you're playing this game is I'm getting good at Bushido Blade. Um, I killed that guy. He didn't kill me. Well, it's funny because the thing about Bushido Blade is that each individual round can be four seconds. Wait, although it can also last a long time. There's a a huge range. Mm -hmm. And when you're playing with your friends, it's fun to cut down all of the bamboo in the bamboo forest. Right. Because it's destructible environments, which is not that common on the PlayStation 1. You know, if you're playing a match and I cut off your leg and you cut off my leg and now we're wandering around slowly and (laughs) we have limited mobility and limited attack sets, that match can take a long time. Yeah, um, right. You know, you have some like, weird rolling attacks when you're... Yeah, the wormy move, as <laughs> it was called. Oh my god, Dave called it that back when it was like Dave coming over for Thanksgiving when I have a friend who now I hang out with all the time, but 
was my sister's friend and would come and hang out. Anyway. Hi, Dave. <laughs> you might listen to this one day. But there's this narrative thing and this narrative arc to the story. And there's some writing. And I'm sure I read it. And there's something about the story that I probably did find compelling. Because I do, I do remember this idea that you had to fight with honor. You had to follow the Bushido code. The way of the samurai. The way of the sword, maybe. I don't know what Bushido means. You'd behave correctly in order to win. And if you were bad, you wouldn't win. Um, and I remember that. And that's, that's like narratively connected. And that's mm-hmm. cool. But really deeply what was going on was that there was this game and I could play it and sometimes I parried and didn't die and then sometimes I didn't parry right and then I died and that was cool because the like high stakes of any individual sword fight moment that was like a really neat thing to have in a game and so the story the narrative of Bushido Blade the thing that was really compelling was not this grand story about I don't know you're like in some like assassin club and then assassin club you like were trying to quit assassin club maybe uh, yeah well you're you're master is a secret assassin and you find out that you have to do the right thing and go against your master and this is fundamentally wrong with the world. Right. Because you must follow your master and you must do the right thing. And And that's very, very hard. And so I'm sure whoever wrote this was attempting to create some kind of strong emotional narrative. But my memory of it is you had to quit Assassin Club? (laughs) And I guess that's hard. You have to kill everyone to quit Assassin Club. Right. And like, it's interesting because each person has their own set of stories. See, I mostly think about this game as fighting four people because you fight three people in like the the one with the tombstones and the snow falling. There's snow falling on all of them. And then you go down into the underground grotto Mm -hmm. and then you fight that person. And most of my existence of playing this game, I did not know how you had to advance past this. But you had to fight with honor in all all four of those matches in order to move on. And then after that, you actually everyone fights the same person and they say the same thing no matter what you do. But those first four, whoever you play as, you get a different set of three other people Okay, with weapons. They actually have their own, there's like a weapon preference. Like everybody right. has yeah, yeah. one move with, you know, yeah, a weapon. And they have the right weapon. Right, and they have the right weapon. Which is how you learn what the right weapon is and who has the right moves for that weapon. But as you go, you get a different story and it develops a relationship between the character you happen to be playing as there's six of them and which of the four of the other characters i think it's four it's three or four total that you fight against and so as you play against them you get like a little piece and like one of them when you get the little cutscene at the end actually spares the other one And they say things to themselves like, I can't believe I killed you. I loved you. Something, something. Or, uh, you know, you get like a little... There's a little bit of story there. It's not exactly the same story, but they do the same actions. Which is an interesting idea of like what the actions are versus what the story is. And that's a whole thing narratively about, you know, in all genres. Like, I'm thinking right now about uh, the movie Before Sunset. I'm only familiar with from your descriptions of it. Right. I love this movie, and I like it more than the one before it and the one after it, which are made eight years apart with the same director and the same... It's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, and it's directed by... He did Boyhood and Dazed and Confused and Waking Life and those other movies, and I'm going to open IMDb. But it's uh, Before Sunset and After Sunrise and... Before Sunrise. Before Sunrise. Before Sunset. Before Sunrise. And After Midnight, I think, is the other one. And if you describe the events of the movie beyond what people say to each other, you know, like what actually happens is a guy does a book signing. He meets this woman and they talk while walking around Paris for another hour. 
and you could describe like where they walk. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I really like this movie, but if you describe what literally happens, it's not that many things. But actually, emotionally and in their lives and and their relationship to each other changes constantly throughout the whole the whole movie, and it's very good. Richard Linklater. That guy. I like a lot of the things that he did. He does like a lot of things. I've never met him, so I don't. I can't say I like. That's like fair. Him. That's fair. He. But I like a lot of the things he did. So anyway, there's some some value in how it's treated and how you get a slightly different story every time, even if you perform the same actions. Uh, I can't think of another movie where they just walk around Paris for like two hours. No, but yeah, I don't know. There, I haven't seen Paris. I love you. I think that's a movie. There's New York, I love you. I haven't seen... I can't think of very many movies set in Paris, so... Yeah. I'm familiar with the idea that they exist. <laughs> There's um, I should probably have seen An American in Paris. That's a movie. That's a movie. Then there's An American Werewolf in Paris, which also has Julie Delphi in it. Last Tango I, in Paris is a movie, uh-huh. I think. Huh. Ratatouille takes place in Paris. That's true, but it contains almost no walking around and a lot of actions. There's a lot of, like, cooking. <clears throat> yeah. Which <laughs> is quite different from walking around. Uh, yeah, there's some walking around. There's cooking. There's some running around and avoiding uh, health inspectors. Yeah. Which is what rats are traditionally doing. <laughs> That's their whole job is avoid health inspectors. Yeah. They're always working in food service, which is weird. <laughs> it's funny that they got hired to begin with. Anyway. So, yes. I said once in a previous podcast, and I think I didn't actually say it on this one, but I said it while we were talking beforehand, that I'm not certain that if you want to tell a story, I'm not certain that making a video game is the right thing to do. Right. But I think if you want to make a video game, telling a story is not a bad idea. Yeah. I think that's true. But I think it's obviously more complex than that because it's like the kind of story you want to tell. Right. And the engagement you want. Because obviously... If you want to tell a story, it's not clear what you should do. Like, it's according to how many people you want to tell it to. Uh, do I want to tell it to a friend? Well, I should probably just talk. <laughs> Talking is a really good medium for telling a story. Um, right. If I want everyone in the world to know my story, recording a podcast where I talk is probably not the right medium. Yeah. Um, and maybe I should do something else. In all fairness, our grand plan isn't to tell particular stories. Right, exactly. To come here. But no, they come out. Uh, so, like, you know, if I want everyone in the world to know my story, should I write a book? It's easy. I just have to put letters after each other. I have to move my fingers, like, not very much. But, like, if I have to make a movie, well, a lot of people are going to want to watch Wiggle this movie. Like <laughs> a pianist. Yeah, or a novelist. Um, <laughs> but, like, if I want really want to tell a story, should I make a movie? Hmm. Should I write a novel? Like, the idea that there's, like, a, you know, a correct medium for telling a story is, like, a somewhat yeah. silly and, one. And I think there are some stories that... I don't know if it's the story, but there's a, an emotional experience you would like your audience to to have. To have. Yeah. And, like, there's a game I played. It took, like, three minutes tops. I don't know, maybe five. So five minutes tops. That where, like, you're supposed to feel isolated and you're, like, a dot. You're a square. You okay. go up. You Like, you're going up. And you can move towards other dots, and then they move away from you if you get towards them. Okay. And then you eventually keep going, and then you... And it's really interesting because the things that people realize is... At first, you go towards other groups, and then they disperse. And you're like, well, then fine, I'm going to avoid other groups. It doesn't tell you you have to do this. Right. But by playing this game, you experience the feeling of wanting to be involved in these other groups, then 
purposefully avoiding them, which is a really interesting and powerful thing. And then it's got some message about people being bullied and something. I don't sure. remember exactly what it is. But it's, yeah. it's, it works as a video game and it gives this experience. You could tell a particular version of that story and a video game would be bad for telling the particular version. But telling the abstract version of the story of the video game might do. It was good. It was a good experience. And it was as long as it needed to be. I feel that we are wrapping up in a somewhat inconclusive way. That's probably true. Well, because stories... It's hard to say what one should or should not do with a medium for art. Right, yeah, it's a bad idea. It's really annoying to me, and and I'm going to call this an art, and you can disagree or not, but the particular art that I find this the most annoying with is food. Okay. You can, you can argue that cooking is not art. I... It'd be, I think it'd be a silly thing to argue, but sure. I, either direction, I think it's silly. So yeah, I definitely wouldn't like tell anyone that their art wasn't art. I would tell them I didn't. Why? Well, probably wouldn't tell them I didn't like it. <laughs> Moving on. You think you didn't like it? <laughs> yeah, I could think I didn't like it, or think it wasn't an art. But I don't think I'd tell anyone. The this idea that food should be a particular way. That's not how this dish is. You should have it like this other way. Okay. It's really easy to decide you're the like arbiter of what something should be. Mm -hmm. But then somebody changes a dish somehow or changes how somebody tells that story or changes, right. does something crazy. And some people are lauded a genius, or sometimes they're said, oh, they're a genius before their time. They did all these techniques right. that people didn't like or whatever. And so things don't necessarily always fit, or there isn't like a best way or a perfectly right way to do something. And there isn't necessarily like a right way to use your medium. People talk about video games about how, oh, you should tell that through mechanics. Right. Cutscenes are, are bad. Right. There is a objectively unique power mm -hmm. in video games which yeah. is that the player has agency that is missing in other mediums right and in film they talk about you have this objective thing and that it's a visual medium and so just talking the whole time is not good right. but then there's clerks right yeah i love that movie i think that's a good movie and it is primarily dialogue Yes, you could do that on a stage play. Yes, you could write that down in a book. But I don't think it's bad because it doesn't primarily use the unique factor of the medium. Right. And I like Uncharted, even though like Uncharted 4 is like, I don't know, 30% cutscene? I don't know what. It's probably not 30% because I died a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I haven't played a lot of the modern games, but like mm -hmm. I played the Metal Gear Solid games and they're, mm. you know... If I can recall correctly, like 80% cutscenes, so... <laughs> right. So, so like, I don't think that having cutscenes is strictly bad. I don't think it's strictly the best. And I actually really like the way... And I'm playing through Uncharted 3 right now. I don't think it's wrong to, like, use this mechanism for telling a bit of story. And in those games, the story is your reward for accomplishing the goals they set in front of you. Right. Which is a whole other aspect of video games, is... The story is the reward for accomplishing whatever task they set about you. I'm playing Crashlands also right now, which is fantastic. I, I'm just really enjoying this game. And as you accomplish a task, you're like, now you get to go back and you get to talk to that person. And I, actually, I think both of those games' cases, the like dialogue is good and fun. Crashland is funny. Uncharted is like... Do you make dialogue choices in Crashlands? No. It's just... No, 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 no. You just hit the button. It's fun. 
It's <laughs> They have this nice, well-crafted dialogue. You can choose what order you do things in. I don't know, but as far as player choice, there's a whole world to explore. You can move around it in different ways. You can decide to go and yeah. punch bushes for you know an hour if you wanted. So like, it's not saying you make no choices. But as far as the whole narrative, it's mostly ordering. And, and sure. As far as I'm, I'm like six or seven hours in. And it's really fun. Uncharted, you have zero narrative choice. There's not a single decision right. you make about yeah. what the narrative is. Right. You decide what gun you're going to pick up. And you're going to decide what order you shoot bad guys in. And you have an aiming ability. One thing that's interesting there is that the idea of deciding how the narrative works. There's a lot of cutscenes. And the story is told primarily in cutscenes. I'm guessing. I haven't played Uncharted 4. But this is true of many AAA games. And so I'm just making a wild guess. Yes. Um, That's true. But if the story wasn't told primarily in cutscenes, all of these mechanical decisions you made of what gun to pick up would be story-impacting decisions because the story would primarily be the thing that you did. Mm. Instead, the story is this other scripted thing. Right. And so, like... My favorite game is this game, Star Control 2. And, you know, there's an overarching story, and you cannot really complete the game without hitting all of the correct narrative elements. You have to go to this system and meet these aliens and find this artifact and trade it with this other alien race and get this other thing and then get this special thing that unlocks this thing and then you get the special chip and then you can challenge monsters and win. And there's a lot. And it's an extremely large world... (laughs) But the, the end, you win, and that's it. But there are no cutscenes. There are only flying around in space and having dialogue trees and picking uh-huh. stuff up and then going places and having more dialogue trees and occasionally having fights. But so the story that you tell, it's sort of this really linear story because, you know, I've played the game like a thousand times, and so there's like a bunch of different things that, that I know have to happen. And there's no... You cannot play the game without having all of these things happen. And there's a, some things have to happen in certain orders, and you, some things can You happen. can if you get blown up by the first enemy in the first two minutes because it didn't tell you you were allowed to save until then. And then you have to replay the whole opening. It's true. This may have happened to me. <laughs> But, like, the actual story is is just made up of all these little decisions. And you're like, and then the starship captain plotted a course to this random star. And in this random star, they found this... Right. In the novelization of your playthrough. Right, of, exactly, yeah. Right. <laughs> of Star Control um, 2. And the novelization of everyone's playthrough of Star Control 2 would be really different from each other. Mm. Whereas the novelization of everyone's playthrough of Uncharted 4 would be approximately the yeah. same. Um, according to how much attention you want to spend on each gunfight. Right. And it's got a couple sections where you drive around in a Jeep somewhere warm. <laughs> you traditionally are in somewhere warm. There's a little bit in Scotland in that game. And so, like, where you can choose which of these little mini bases to go and infiltrate first and that game is nice because they give stealth as a legitimate option to get through a okay. little mini shark base to take down and in all the previous one i'm right now i'm on three i played four and then one and then two and now i'm on three uh because i got a playstation four and i didn't have a playstation three right so i played the one that came with my playstation first and then i was like oh that was fun i'll go back I have literally no idea how anyone decided after the first game that they should make more of them. But I like the second one pretty well. The first one's just not that good. It, it might have been good for the time, but, oh, but yeah. I remember games from the past, so I'm usually pretty good about knowing whether something was good for the time. Yeah, it's funny. And I just went from the most recent iteration to the oldest one, and yeah. so 
So, like, I can't really say that I don't know how anyone saw that. Because I'm sure people played it and were like, oh, that was fun. I like how this these couple of things... I'm just thinking now about, like, the storytelling in Halo, which we talked about last time. Right. And how it exists. And you get it while you're, like, running through. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't not have story. There's not, like, quite as much, I'm a person, you're a person, we talk to each other. It's more like, I am a tank with arms and legs, and you are a computer program running in my head, and you tell me where to go. Right, but, you know, there's, like, this war, and Mm -hmm. someone attacked their ship, and we had to crash land, and we crash landed on their, like, special weird world. Right. Um, And And you get story story points as a reward for completing sections and that right there is a really interesting idea the idea that like one that you get rewards for accomplishing tasks in games because games are themselves fun so what does that mean Mm. um but two that narrative is a form of reward and i think it's all true but i think that like that that set of ideas deserves attention and unpacking for thinking about game design because because why does that work and this is where I want to talk about that part in Portal with the panel and the cake mm. is a lie. Right. That we, I think, are obliged to talk about in every one of them. Right, yes. <laughs> where, like, you get rewarded for advancing. Yeah. And I think that's important. There's something about, like... You're also rewarded for exploring in that regard. Because that's optional, I think. I can't remember how optional it is. It's been a while since I, I've played I, it. I think it's optional, but it's so well-crafted that everyone will do it. Yeah, that's true. And and I think, like, consequently, right, it does that portal thing that I was talking about earlier, which is, like, I'm a genius. <laughs> I discovered oh, yeah. the secret thing. Right, right. This is for all puzzle games, not just Portal, that, right. like, the best puzzle games make you feel like a genius for figuring it out and too hard or like too not discoverable and people are like this is stupid you just made an impossible thing and too easy you're like yeah you thought you were clever well done guys and portal is very very good at riding that line and being like wow i am so smart for having figured this thing out that like thousands and thousands of other people have done right that was like literally crafted for me to figure out within a certain amount of time before i got bored and i love puzzle (laughs) games yeah no they're fantastic they're some of my favorite games why we're making one. <laughs> I like it when someone crafts something for me to be able to figure out. I lo- among other things, I like creating experiences where people can learn things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. <laughs> Professionally. It's such a funny thing that that is what they're going for, is making your player feel smart for right. having done it, is the primary goal of puzzle games. Right. But the cake is a lime moment in Portal is a particularly neat one because it is wrapped up in this puzzle game stuff. This idea of being smart and clever and using the mechanics in a certain way. But it's where you use it to do something different. Part of the narrative portal is that there are puzzles. So that's cool. Um, (laughs) But that, like, the AI is presenting puzzles to you. And then there there are these moments when you solve a different puzzle that is not the puzzle that the AI has presented. And so the part of the puzzle is discovering this other puzzle that you could solve. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so you feel really smart about that. And then you get rewarded by this narrative chunk that like gives you this feeling that, oh, it's not just a series of puzzles. There's something deeper. And also finding the narrative chunk makes you feel clever. Right. So it reinforces that aspect of these games. But like the narrative is definitely a reward, especially yeah. in that one moment. Yeah, well, and the writing in that game is so great. The narrative is one thing, but the writing is another. Where, like, you just get rewarded huh. by another joke. Right? Like, things that are funny that are not, they're not, like, broadly related to the overarching narrative. Hmm. But they're just, like, lines of dialogue. Oh, right. Yeah, but cleverly delivered lines of dialogue are great. No, they're great. But it's, like, it's sort of the same as a narrative reward, but the reward is, like, a chuckle. Uh-huh. Mm. But like that's a great reward. That's Chuckles great are reward. one of the best things in life. And I think about I know. And I think about this in terms of, say, Final Fantasy, where your rewards are being bigger right. and therefore being able to fight bigger enemies to make you feel at the same power level. Having larger numbers appear on the screen. Right, but that ultimately have the same meaning. Right, yeah. Because like, yeah. you want your players to feel challenged but not not overwhelmed but not right. over dominating whelmed. and, and for them to feel whelmed yeah players should be whelmed <laughs> all the time and th- it's hard to do that if you're going to have everyone advance the whole time right and so advancement isn't necessarily a reward that's good because it makes you have to like alter the whole world state to feel whelmed but you can't do you that's that's the system you've set up that's the way you've decided to give rewards and narrative as a reward means you don't have to do that i I expect that one of the things that happens in final fantasy well there's a lot of backtracking that you have Mm. to do and i don't know how deliberately designed this is in the early days it might be but it also might be like naive good game design but you go back and then you're really strong and that Uh makes you feel powerful you know, you get to kill the slimes in one hit, and that's great. That Dragon Warrior, I guess. But yeah. um, <laughs> the imps, yeah, yeah. And I love the feeling of building something, like building my character, or if it's a place that right, makes yeah. me build. Like it's why tower defense games are compelling because you're building this base. Except I have other problems with tower defense games. They're like so compelling, and I like them a lot. Except that I hate them. Yeah, also as a, as a genre, there's some really dubious decisions I, that are consistently made. I have not fully unpacked my feelings oh. about, <laughs> about tower defense games. I'll have to do that more later. And I've played a, a bunch of them, all the free ones on the internet for sure. But also, <laughs> so many. But yeah, I'm sure it's not all the free ones on the internet. But there's something about that. It's what made me come to realize that the building of something. Whether it's me, you know, something that sort of is me. Right. A system that you've made a bunch of decisions in. Right. And then now I have this thing that's something that my work made better. Right. And you can see those decisions play out. Right. And that's true in tower defense games, in role-playing games, you know, standard RPG mechanics. And I think that there's, in many games, to the extent that those decisions that you made change game style or, or change something visible is really important. So, like in Diablo, you can be a necromancer, I think. You certainly can be in Diablo 2. That sounds right. Um, and you can also be in Diablo 3. I don't remember the first one. It's been a long time. There's a GDC postmortem on the original Diablo. But I really like being a necromancer. Among other things, because the decisions that you make in picking your... Uh, and this is true, actually, broadly in many action RPGs. I will pick necromancer if I can. Because I have determined that this is a more fun play style. Because the decisions that you make radically alter the way the game functions. 
because the idea of killing things producing resources that become minions is a very different kind of play experience than merely killing things and gaining experience. Huh. And so I feel very invested in the game when my decisions have this like major impact on the way the game is played. And so if right. my decisions are like, do I choose the two-handed halberd that gives me plus seven damage and is magical so I have lightning damage, or do I have a sword and shield so I get plus two damage right. and plus seven defense? Like, that's like a relatively boring decision to right. me because it doesn't fundamentally impact the it, gameplay. It's like how I prefer to use stealth if it's an option. Right. Mostly. Unless I can be a mage. Right. For some reason, I like magic. Although I had this experience playing uh, Skyrim where I played for a long time as a mage and you just get killed a lot because you're really weak and then you like shoot fireballs and that feels good. I like shooting fireballs and then and lightning and whatever and but then I realized man I spent so much time sneaking around that the next time I played I played as like a super heavy armor wielding two-handed sword and I just walked up to things and clicked them and they died. And this made me feel so much better in that game. Also, the fact that I realized that mages reach a cap where they just literally can't do any more damage. Mm. When no other class in that entire game huh. does that. But, like, fireballs always deal the same amount of damage. And the only thing you can make better is that huh. you spend less mana when you cast it. So you can cast more fireballs. Right. But, like, everyone else is like, well, now my hit hits harder. Right. So I can hit you and kill you in one hit. But very with funny. Yeah. I feel like traditionally in role-playing games, wizards have the highest ceiling. And, right. I think there are... And the lowest floor. They were messing with that. Yeah. But then it just was really dissatisfying. Yeah. So I didn't... But yeah, like, making decisions that, like, fundamentally change the way the game is played feels really satisfying. Yeah. Whereas making decisions that are like, oh, I've become proficient in blunt weapons instead of sharp ones, so I don't pick up swords and I pick up maces. <laughs> you don't feel good about that. You're right. Like, okay. Those decisions don't feel meaningful right. and they never have picking which melee weapon you use yeah. has never felt good i always just go with a sword right you go or yeah like you go with whatever is the best weapon you have at the time or you go with a sword because in fact in general most games make the best weapon a sword right and i know this because <laughs> excalibur in yeah. final fantasy one is the second best the masamune is the right. best one also a sword also a sword and they they do some character class things where like certain character classes but still you can just pick four fighters and a white mage and then win because you just kill everything yeah that was the easiest thing to do i know yeah they thought they were clever um, by giving you all these different options, but you just need to... Right, but you pick them. You make that decision later when you're, like, playing the game for the second time and you're, like, experimenting. Right. But the first time you play, you're like, I want to try all these things. Right. The other thing is, one of the things in that game is the reward is gear that you find in the world. Mm -hmm. But, like, only one of the characters can really take advantage of all that gear. Right, so you want to have all the things. So, actually, the best way to play that game is the one that gives you the most reward. And that is with four, three fighters and a white mage. 
Right. So you can run around and do that. And so, like, you know, you're rewarding your players as you play. You want to give them a little reward every time they do something. And this has been true forever. Like, Mario gives you a reward every time you beat a level by giving you a little card in Mario 3. Or, uh, you know, you get to the end and you get the flag and you get fireworks and you get this little reward. I don't fundamentally disagree, but, like, the game is the actual fun part. And so, like, the gameplay... Yeah. Like, getting new gameplay, that's, like, the real reward, right? Like, watching fireworks in Mario isn't actually fun. I would skip it if I could. Yeah, but there's the diagram that is, like, how you should hit a peak, and yeah, then the, you like, should settle down. The interest curve. The interest curve, or whatever. Uh, there's a great extra credits about it, and then I've seen this yeah. other places. Jesse Shell talks about it in Art of Game Design. Mm. Um, talks about interest curves a lot. Right. So, like, you need that calm little yeah, thing. Yeah, the, like, the moment of success. The moment of, of success. You need it. Like, I was playing Sultan Sanctuary, and I just got bored because there were little, like, moments. But, like, there nothing feels like you're progressing. Right. Other than I beat that boss. But, like, nothing feels right. You don't get that little bit of, ah, yes. And maybe you get a little bit of it sometimes when you explore a new place. And exploration can be its own thing. Right, that's a new content is... Right, and that content can be a little bit of story. Right. It can be a new level type where there's, like, different art for the floors. Right. Or (laughs) or a new mechanic where you're like, oh my god, the floors can crumble now. Right. Right, but like actually some combination of a lot of these things is really good. But you you need to reward your players for having done the thing. It also helps them know that they're on the right track. Mm-hmm. They've been doing the right thing. That's one thing about the um, Uncharted games is that like you know you did the right thing because you tripped the cutscene. Right. Right. You're like, I did it. Right. Yeah. I did the thing. Now I get to be in a different mode where I like find the right way I need to go. The right door to go in. Because now I killed all the bad guys and my friend talked to me for a minute. And so, and in Uncharted 4, there's a cutscene every, like, two minutes. And they just took one big cutscene and spread it out over, you know, several hours. But, you know. And they're not all cutscenes. Some of them are just little, you know... You're like walking around with your brother, and he's like, "Hey, see that cliff?" You're like, "Oh, because he said that, I know I'm on the right, right track." Like little in-engine dialogue moments or whatever. Yeah, and they do fun things like your characters point the right way because you're going to look at your friend or oh. whatever, and it works. And like, I think it's nice and it's important. And like, people have been doing it a little bit subconsciously or consciously, right, for decades. But then sometimes you, when you don't see it, something feels just really wrong with I, your experience. I recently watched a little bit of like let's plays of mario odyssey okay um, which is the new mario game mm-hmm. on the nintendo switch um where you throw a hat yep cappy <laughs> um and you're collecting moons in this game mm-hmm. but i was like struck by this like over the top celebration when you get a moon like <laughs> you get a moon and then uh-huh. like things spin around and it's like you got a moon and then it has like a little one sentence description of the moon somehow like it's got it's like unique one behind the waterfall in the frozen lands but that's not what it is um right. well like zelda opening a chest in yeah. ocarina of time and it's like you got five rupees right thanks um, zelda but like this like you got a moon thing and it's completely over the top and silly but it's also like you're doing good like, what you need to be doing is getting moons. Right. So you got some moons. <laughs> cool. Right. That's it. You did the right thing. That's the important like, thing. Like, keep on getting moons. Right. As opposed to getting a coin. Right. I don't no, even know if you get coins. Right. And that's good. That's better than nothing. Right. Um, it makes a little bing. 
yeah sound yeah so player rewards are not unsignificant and I, and I think that like insignificant they call it to a certain extent in talking about narrative in talking about story probably in thinking about story in video games we should be thinking about story as a form of player reward right and not as like an end unto itself right Right? Like, story is one of the many tools we have for rewarding players, directing them, and making them engage in the thing. Our goal in, as video game designers is probably not to tell a certain kind of linear story, because we just write that down with words. Mm-hmm. It's to, like, cause people to have a certain kind of experience. Right. But, but linear stories work that way. Right. As a reward for players, for accomplishing tasks... For progressing in the way that you intended them to progress. Yeah. But the important thing is that, like, embedded in a video game, the story becomes a source of satisfaction in a way that is, like, somewhat unique. When you read a book, you're, like, satisfied because you're like, oh, I finished a book. But in the middle of the book, you're not less like, oh, I finished a chapter. (laughs) Yes. Well, it's funny because I do feel, like, a little of that when I get to the end of, like, a chunk. That's true. Terry Pratchett doesn't do chapters. I mean, he doesn't do anything now. He died, sadly. But his books are all in these little pieces, and right. then there's a little page break, right. and it goes on to the next bit. There is something about getting to the end of one of those, especially if you're like, all right, I did that, and now I'm going to move on to the next little bit, and you get a mm-hmm. new character. It's Yeah, and there's later. probably some pacing there. Mm-hmm. It's worth thinking about, like, how do you chunk up narrative, right. even in this linear, novelistic way, right? I mean, And it's commercial breaks. Yeah. <laughs> Like, getting to the end of that bit, and even in movies that don't have commercial breaks, will have segments that end, and you're like, wow, okay, now we get to settle, it fades out, we're right. going to fade back in, and it's going to be the next day, and you get a little change of pace for a minute, and it lets you reflect back on what you were thinking, you know, what just happened, right. and think about a little bit about how that's going to impact the future, and then you get to see how it actually impacts the future in the next bit. And one of the big differences between books and video games and movies is that movies are experienced all in one sitting basically mm. um, and both video games and books and TV shows right. you, you put down between pieces yeah, that's true um, and, and so there needs to be something about the reward structure that gets you to come back right it's why novels translate to television series almost always better than they translate into movies right that's why you get Game of Thrones yeah which is a good TV series <laughs> in many ways yeah um, I've, I've seen some of it um, I just finished the fifth book and then was like, all right, now I'm going to watch the whole show. But then I watched the first season and was like, that was exactly like the first book. I just came out of that world. I'm going to stay away. So it might be time to watch Game of Thrones the rest of the way through. Yeah, I don't know if I want to read the book. So I don't know if I would bother. I'm sure some people would express extreme opinions about this sort of thing. But I I feel like I'm like, eh, I saw it once. I don't need to see it again. (laughs) Whatever. The first season (laughs) isn't exactly the book. Yeah. But it's not exactly not the book. So it's, it's it's not like I don't like reading, but there's like a lot of things to read. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I started reading the books before the show came out, right? Which gives me that honor to be that obnoxious guy who says that kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah. I don't know what you would do as a, with a Game of Thrones video game. Right, yeah, how, how would you? There's a lot of battles. A lot of battles. You would probably bounce back and forth between different characters. Probably be um, dialogue trees. Yeah, I mean, the story of Game of Thrones is, like, extremely particular. Right. Um. So either you would have to create a huge amount of possibilities, maybe right. some procedural stuff where there was, like, relationships between houses that resulted in mm-hmm. different diplomatic things happening. I hear the board game is really good. Yeah, I've been meaning to play that for a long time. It's been on my wish list. Yeah. (laughs) From a particular online retailer for some years now. 
But its goal is to explore the mechanics available based on the narrative mm-hmm. rather than right. trying to keep any of the narrative in it. And and that's one of the interesting things about adapting things to a video game is, one, they're mostly terrible, with the exception of Krull, the video game for the Atari, which mm-hmm. is one of the best Atari games. Pitfall is one of the other ones. And also... The Chronicles of Riddick, right? which they basically said, let's not make a video game about any of the movies. Let's make a video game about Riddick. And it was really good. And then they remade it and then added extra bits. And I hear those aren't so good. But, but the first Chronicles of Riddick game is just really cool. And it does awesome things with lighting and shadow, which is very important in those games because it's all about your eyes mm-hmm. being amplified. Right. You're blind or not blind or you're right. in the dark. or right. And it's got stealth, and it's got cool like segments where you have to go in and destroy all the lights in a room so that it's dark, so that you have the advantage over your enemies. And that's just really cool. And it's just a really good game. And it's not actually an adaptation of a movie. Right. It's a, it is another thing that is mm-hmm. in the world. Right. And that's why like, many of the Star Wars games are quite fun. Uh, right. They're not adaptations of the Star Wars movies. They're just set in the world of Star Wars, which is, by design, a pretty open-ended, relatively rich right. environment. So, right. Like, they also have done so much work on the like sound effects yeah, I forget well, who was talking about this, but somebody, it wasn't me who came up with this, but like the sound design is so rich for all those games because they were done by professional sound designers right. by somebody else before you ever came on site. Yeah, but also by literally the same company. <laughs> because in the early days, Lucasfilm and LucasArts were not extremely different. Right. And so they just had the rights to all those things, and they had those actual composers around, and they had those actual <laughs> recordings, and they had access yeah. to all the things. Yeah, I was thinking about Star Wars Battlefront 2. The first time there was a Star Wars Battlefront 2. There's another one out. Right, which is weird, because they could just have new names. I but... know. Numbering schemes in video games, you can just go do something. Like, either it's a different game. Explicit. So give it a different name. Right. Or it's a sequel, so give it the next number. Right. Star Wars Battlefront 3. Right. Great. That's a fine name. That's a fine name. Oh, man. It's so easy to make fun of things that are called something X. Because four, five things just came out that are all called something X. And, like, Windows skipped Mm -hmm. 9. And the iPhone skipped 9. And... The Xbox is skipping everything to becoming an Xbox One, which itself is just idiotic. They called it an Xbox One. How do you Google the original Xbox? Yeah. PlayStation 4. Got it. easy. It's the fourth one. Ugh, man. It's too bad they don't listen to people. (laughs) You make numbers go up. People like numbers going up. That's one of the lessons of Final Fantasy, is that we like numbers getting bigger. (laughs) That's true. And hopefully we will never reach the point where the number of Final Fantasies is the number of Playstations. Well, maybe we could take a break on Final Fantasies. I hear there's a 15. Yeah, I I did take a break on Final Fantasies. No, no, I did. Um, I took a break after 7. I took a break after 10. Oh, I had 12. 12 was fun because it changed up how you, you didn't get sucked into combat. Mm. You like ran around and you were in combat, but you could change targeting enemies and you were in a three-dimensional space. It was good. It was an improvement because they realized like just getting sucked into battles is not the most compelling video game right. gameplay. And we have to compete against shooters that also have stories. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. And that was the thing going for Final Fantasies. Right. Stories are hard to put in. I'm not sure we should do them. That's the conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, I think you should. They're probably worth doing. I think they're probably worth doing. I think you should probably put a story in your video Um, game. But I think I'm more likely to like it. Yeah, and I think you should probably use words in your story. But that's how I feel. Have you played Journey? I haven't. The game that I played recently, which I really love, that doesn't use words in its story, is Hyperlight Drifter. Oh. It's beautiful. It's got great game mechanics. But, like, I just kept seeing little, like, already cut scenes, and I'd be like, oh, Parrot Wizard has burned down Dogtown. And that's, like, my version of the story. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And like, it's just hard to feel connected to like Parrot Wizard has burned down yeah. Dogtown. What about Machinarium? Did you play Machinarium? I didn't. Right. That's interesting, and it uses a series of pictures, but they're all robots. Yeah, I've seen bits of it. It's, yeah. it's a delightful looking game, but all right, like art wise. But... So stories, yes. Words, question mark. Yeah, that's good. We're done. We're done. We solved all, all right. the problems. Good night, I'm, everyone. Good night. I'm Bryce, and I'm Will. And this is SideQuest. We will talk to you later. Goodbye.